read now from the uh, words of Paul to the church at Corinth, starting at verse 12 in chapter 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misinterpreting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted. He, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Dead are not good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, Paul's rhetoric is obviously challenging to plow through, wouldn't you agree? And it's not uh, rhetoric in the negative sense, but he is making arguments in the classical style that's common to his times, and uh, especially to his Greek 
and Roman audience, which the church at Corinth is made up. The church at Corinth was very diverse, and Corinth was at a critical crossroads, so it was in a community that was um, diverse, to say the least, and somewhat transient, too. So he's, he's trying to cross a lot of cultural divides in his teaching at Corinth. But the fundamental thing that Paul is arguing about in this reading, and the reason that he's concerned for the church at Corinth, is that they have diluted the gospel. And this is an ongoing problem in the life of the church universal. It is an ongoing problem in America today. It's probably even a little bit of a problem in this congregation in some settings. And I don't mean to call anybody out. I'm just saying this is a universal problem of watering down the gospel. That means that you dilute it and take away some of its important potency. And so this is Paul's intent to correct an error in doctrinal understanding. And doctrine is is a word that we use in church a lot that really just kind of describes the boundaries around what we believe. You know, within those boundaries, you know, today you're going to watch a football game, some of you, and there's going to be clear boundaries. And as long as the game is played within those boundaries, most things go. But as soon as they go out of bounds, then it stops play and we have to reset, get back in the boundaries. And so it's that way with doctrine in the church. We try to make sure people have a correct understanding of things. And this is exactly what Paul's doing here. He's trying to make sure people have a correct understanding of the true nature of the gospel. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of resurrection. And so if I told you that some of the people at Corinth were people who believed in a life after death, even before they had become Christians, that might surprise you. But if you stop and think about it, most people believe in some sort of life after death. There aren't many people that you will meet who are convinced that there's nothing when we die and that we simply expire and cease to exist. Most people, if for no other reason than fear, will not own that idea. That everybody wants to believe there's something And so most people are convinced of this, even if they're pagans. Paul's aware of that. And so he's also aware then that in the church, there are variations on this belief within the body there. And so many of them are, in a sense, accepting that their life after death is uh, not so much the assurance that it Uh, sounds like to us, but more of an assurance that when we die, we're going to a good place. Heck, I watched a show not long ago called The Good Place. Ironically, if you watch that series play out, well, I don't want to ruin it for you, but it's a lie. (laughs) And so we all live with this sort of philosophical concept of life after death. And many Christians are even guilty of having a very shallow interpretation of what Christ has done for us when it comes to our life after death. A lot of people go to church regularly, worship in a way that is both uh, 
uh, meaningful, but but sort of you know light. It, it's uh, it's watered down, and that means that what we do is we we acknowledge that we're better off because we follow Christ and believe in Christ, but at the same time, we don't put a lot of stock in it because if we did, we'd bet our, our existence on it. We would live in a different way. This is what Paul's trying to drive home here in his rather complicated argument. He's basically saying to people, look, if there is no resurrection, then nothing else we talk about really matters either. That if we said that Christ died for us and that death in itself paid the penalty for our sin, and so thanks for that, Jesus, then he's really no more than a dead hero. And we've given medals of honor to people posthumously for dying for the sake of others, and so that puts him in the same company with them. But Paul is arguing that there's way more going on here that what he is doing for us is far more than sacrificially dying on our behalf in order to satisfy our guilt before God. He is creating a whole new paradigm. And the only way we can really grasp that is to have Paul's understanding of Scripture and our own is adequate for this particular purpose. We understand that in the beginning, God created humanity specifically to exist in his presence and for the sake of his son in a place we call Eden. In reality, Eden is this island in the middle of chaos where God rules, where God's creation is perfect in all of its ways. And because of Satan's uh, interference and human uh, tendencies to test and fall short, we have now been cast out of Eden. We live in the chaos. Now, thanks be to God, because of Christ, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that, and we don't even know why, but it's because of Christ that we, the body of Christ, are the cosmic order amid the chaos. In other words, after Eden, there was humanity existing within the chaos that was reigned over by God's enemy. And for a long time, if it weren't for God's direct intervention with specific people, there would have been no hope for humanity. But then when Christ comes, God creates a new paradigm. This is why Paul says in this particular reading that through Adam we had death and through Christ we have life and resurrection. He's saying basically that God hit the reset button with the resurrection of Jesus. Now that's a much bigger deal than just saying, well, you know, I wouldn't be able to go to heaven when I die if it weren't for Christ. So thanks, Jesus. It's way more than that. It's a whole new paradigm. It's a reset so that the goal ultimately is that we go back to Eden. That that whole Edenic existence resumes and it will be fulfilled as Paul says, as we see from John in the Revelation and a variety of other places, not the least of which the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, the ultimate goal is for Christ to return, and then we too are resurrected from death, and we get to hit that reset button completely and be 
in an Edenic or in a relationship with God that was like the one that Adam and Eve had with God in Eden, where they could walk with God and talk with God in the cool of the evening. Doesn't that, I say that all the time because that really turns me on. I mean, it's just the idea that I might sit and chat with God in the cool of an evening. So this is what the goal is. Now, before I go too far off base, I want to just come back to this important thing that Paul says. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also resurrection from the dead. The important thing that Paul is driving home here is that we will die, but we will not all be resurrected to life eternal. And this is where the gospel starts to get some real meat on its bones and starts to mean something in the sense that we are going to need to change how we live now because of this gospel. So what is Paul saying? Well, basically what he's saying is, is that Jesus, who was dead, bodily, physically resurrected from the dead, What's remarkable is he did it in his own power and authority, which is not how we're going to do it. <laughs> he, in his sort of uh, dynamic of being the, the Godhead in the person of the Son, re-inhabits his body, but not only revitalizes a living, you know, it's not as though his body was, was uh, brought back to life, say, like Lazarus's body. You know, where it's the same thing, but it's been revived. He is a new form of creation. When you read scripture, you realize that after his resurrection, he has some unique qualities that he didn't have while he was in the flawed human form that we experience right now. And I won't dwell on that too much, but just keep in mind that after the resurrection, he's always where he needs to be. And sometimes they can't figure out how he got there. The doors were locked, the windows were shuttered, and that Jesus was amidst them in this moment. And when he said, I'll see you in Galilee, well, he's there, you know, so I don't want to get into that kind of stuff. But what it tells me is, is that in his resurrected form, he is as real as real can be. He is as physical as you and I, but he is perfected. And this is what resurrection looks like. This is what the Bible tells us about resurrection. Now, many Christians live as though they are striving for something that looks more like an assurance that when they die, they'll be in a peaceful place, that their spirit will dwell in some sort of ghostly form, and that they'll be... Um, happy that there will be bliss, you know. And, and sometimes when I have conversations with people, they'll say, like I had a friend who used to say, well, I hope that in heaven it's like the 1950s because America was never better than it was in the 1950s. And I'm like, well, okay, I, I hope you're right too. But I, I suspect that you're, you're falling short <laughs> of what this picture of heaven uh, might be like because we think now that those who have died and entered into Christ's presence in the sense that their soul has ascended to Christ's presence. And the scripture seems to inform us pretty clearly that while they are not physical in form like 
the resurrected dead, they are known and knowable and somehow there's a, there's a connection and there's a community and there's a sense that in, the, in this temporary disposition of death that we are not so incomplete that we don't have a sense of who we are and who people around us are. But beyond that, we are gonna have to just guess. What we do have, and Paul is emphatic about this, is an assurance of our bodily resurrection when Christ returns. It literally means that bodies who have been in the grave for ages have as much potential to be physically real and present as our, our bodies right now. Now, I know it's tempting to try to you know, delve into what that means. But for now, let's, con let's stick to the concept that uh, Paul is driving home here. If, in fact, Christ was resurrected that way, and we too are going to be resurrected that way, then that puts an entirely different spin on how we live out the gospel. Because now we're talking about an eternal existence like this, but perfected. You know, I, I don't know what that means to you, but I know what it means to me. It means that it isn't as though you run your race in this life the best you can and then you sit on a cloud and stroke a harp for the rest of eternity. Frankly, that sounds boring. Now, if you want to read something really funny, read Mark Twain's whole account of Captain Stormfield's trip to heaven because... Captain Stormfield was so bored with heaven that he went exploring, and, and it's pretty hilarious. But that was simply because Twain, who was notoriously cynical about Christianity, thought that the whole idea of some sort of bliss after you die was ridiculous. He knew it had to be more than that, and he may have been somebody that knew a lot more about these things than he let on, but that's a discussion for another day main thing is, is to understand that if you embrace a gospel that doesn't include the physical resurrection of the dead on the day of Christ's return, your gospel is incomplete. And if, in fact, we are going to be resurrected from the dead and physically real for the remainder of eternity, which is, I guess, an oxymoron since there is no remainder of eternity, but I digress. So we have this picture then of a life that we need to begin sustaining now. We have a life that we need to continue. It isn't as though you die and that's it, you know, and then, and then you, you just kind of have to take whatever hand you were dealt or whatever you were to, you know, see, there's the thing that Jesus tried to say in the passage that we read from a couple of weeks ago. He was trying to say what about people who are wealthy, you know, uh, not going into the, to heaven easily. And really all he was saying is that whole mindset that it's about what you accumulate. And it's about, you know, what we Christians have a tendency to do. This is what some people would call a works-based gospel is we have a tendency to act as though if we accumulate, accumulate enough merit in God's eyes, that that will warrant some greater reward when we get to heaven. You see, that's a flawed logic because it falls short of seeing God for who God really is. Works do not win God's favor 
Therefore, it doesn't matter how many works you've accumulated or how much uh, notability you've received on earth for your good works. None of that matters in the eyes of God. What matters is your pursuit of God. To understand that the goal is to ultimately spend the cool of the evening in God's presence. And it is my uh, particular taste in literature has led me to a couple of stories that I really love that help me see that more clearly. One of them I've referred you to on numerous occasions, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. He paints a really great picture of how the pursuit of God might look and how it really transcends physical life as we know it right now. And so as we are now, and then even after we die, our pursuit is still the same, to be in the immediate presence of God. And in order to be able to be in the immediate presence of God, we have to strive for greater and greater holiness or sanctification. Now, if that being true, if that turns out to be true, then what we are looking at is a physical existence that involves the pursuit of God now, that involves the pursuit of God in spiritual form after we die, and a physical existence that involves the pursuit of God after we're resurrected. So what is the one constant in all three of those scenarios? The pursuit of God, the presence of God, the very idea that you could be having a sit down with God in the evening to enjoy his presence, to adore his son, to relish the very infusion of God's nature in us, the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes I stray off my notes and it's a good thing, but there are times when I've written something I really like and I just don't want to leave it out. So I'll conclude with this. Belief in an afterlife is not unique and therefore has no power to persuade non-Christians. It does not really do much for self-proclaimed Christians either. To such persons, life after death is an unreal, ethereal existence that happens in a mystical paradise or is so unimaginable that it's not worth thinking about. Paul is trying to say this should be what we think about all the time. But you know, I'm wagering that this afternoon, many of us who will enjoy uh, the entirely and utterly and completely secular religion of media and football, it'll be easy to forget about pursuing God. As Paul argues that the implications of the physical resurrection are staggering, it means that we will be as we are now, but better. It means that these bodies will be like the one Jesus possessed after his resurrection that was experienced by thousands of people before his ascension, and millions and millions of people have experienced the reality of his presence in the Holy Spirit ever since. The gospel of the kingdom is to be lived out right now. And our works are not in any way designed to earn God's favor or to gain a higher place in the heavenly realm, but to simply be 
practice for the resurrection life that will come. Now we see dimly, then we will see clearly. Now we pursue God, though hampered by sin and death and a world of chaos. Then we will pursue God physically with no inhibition. That's what this is all about. This is what it will mean when we break bread together at the table. Jesus wanted us to see that this is literally about his flesh and about his blood and literally about our flesh and blood. Thank you.